The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage the great neuroplastic brain for recovery. Acupuncture has to do with stimulating certain trigger points along the body's meridian lines to help regulate the flow of energy or chi. They looked at this in the different phases of stroke and they found that it's not more helpful in general. So they looked at it in terms of balance, cognitive function, depression, dexterity, independence, and a lot of other things that it's not really effective for. But you know what it's effective for? Swallowing problems. It's effective for dysphagia. What? In the, Get out. I'm not kidding you. In the previous episode of Noggins and Neurons, What Makes a Great Therapist, Pete and I talked about striving for excellence and how this benefits clinicians and clients. Proper training may lay a foundation for clinicians to develop the necessary skills for clinical success. We talked about asking significant questions being as important as knowing what to do with the answers. Advocacy and listening often go hand in hand, and lifelong learning includes topics that go beyond diagnoses and deficits. Pete shared some information about the Diving Bell and the Butterfly book or movie that can help all of us understand Understand brain injury. Developing observational skills is key. And also along with that, we can't be afraid to speak up about what we learn so that we can help our patients in the best way possible. We also learned that traumatic brain injury survivors can relearn empathy. And we talked about these topics and quite a few more. Both of us shared stories and thoughts from our personal experiences. And we hope this helps you in your clinical practice or recovery journey. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and start. Hey, Deb Battistella, how are you? Hey, Pete Levine, I'm great. How are you? Good. 
So you asked how I looked at today's topic, mm-hmm. which is to go to our old friends over there at Stroke Engine, yeah. part of the EBRSR, or at mm-hmm. least that's the way I look at it, and try to figure out the list of potential recovery treatment options that they have for stroke yeah. and see what they said about this literal laundry list, except it's an alphabetized laundry list of potential treatment options. Mm-hmm. And the way I looked at it was the way they presented on the stroke engine is not stellar. A lot of the references have been updated. So what I did was I took their suggestions, the laundry list, but looked at the EBRSR and I just felt more comfortable with that. What, how did you do it? I just was looking at what they had and I started digging more into the results. At the bottom of the page, they list each topic and what the results are, if it's effective, ineffective, or mixed. And I started reading those because as you dig into the literature more, it's not super clear because I'm wondering now how a clinician would look at this and if they look at it. You think they would be a little bit flummoxed? Well, I think they might be because I am. So are are you just going to sit on a really good news uh, with regard to the EBRSR? Do I have to tell the (laughs) fine folks at home? Wait a minute. (laughs) Because I'm just thinking, you know, if we wanted to ask somebody um, to elucidate and help us figure out all the gray areas, it would be great to have the grand Puba of the EBRSR, the Evidence-Based Review of Stroke Rehabilitation, and Marcus. By the way, Marcus was drinking Tim Horton's coffee, which is my favorite I noticed coffee. that. I, so I almost brought that up. I did too, Tim but Horton then... Is, it's Canadian. So yeah. That makes sense. Well, it does. And you can get a lot of that in Canada, which is where they are. Yeah, that's where they are. So anyway, the good news is we have the great Robert T. Sell, MD. He's a physiatrist. The huge amount he's done in his career in terms of directing many rehab hospitals and awards. And he he's just like the guy when it comes to stroke recovery. I get the feeling globally he knows more than anybody. But anyway, they run the EBRSR, him and Marcus, and they agreed to come on the podcast. And we are recording that. I don't know when. Oh, we September 10th. Oh, that's right. It was September 10th. Thank you. I forgot. It's my granddaughter's birthday. What? I know. Is she going to show up when we record it? Because I would. She might. I might be in New Jersey when this happens. Who knows? Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so look forward to that. And he'll yeah. be, I'm, I'm gonna, maybe we should throw those kinds of questions, especially at Marcus, the guy who actually runs it. You know, what does May mean? What does, you know, how much can we hang our hat on this? How do we interpret all this stuff that you guys have? Yeah. And I'm glad that you brought this up and that we're announcing this to our listeners. And I do wonder if now might be a good time, if, if you've been thinking about emailing us or if you have these questions that are kind of marinating in the back of your brain, now would be a good time to email us join that Facebook group, the Noggins and Neurons Facebook group, and we can start talking about this in more detail. Well, speaking of email, we got an email from a town just north of Manila in the Philippines. And um, I'd like to review that email because I thought it was really quite interesting. Let's do it. All right. So the person's name was Alex, and I don't want to give their real name and I'll just call him Alex. I am Alex starts the email, which is great. That's a perfect way to start. Okay. I'm an occupational therapy intern in Angeles University Foundation, Angeles, Philippines, which is just north of Manila. I really enjoyed listening to your 
podcast, Noggins and Neurons. Upon listening to the topic regarding how repetition rules recovery, I believe Mr. Peter Levine noted that there are 1,200 repetitions of wrist flexion and extension needed in order to mark significant changes in fMRI results. Wow, this person was listening. That mm-hmm. was great. I tried checking the articles cited in the descriptions of your podcast. However, I was unable to find the article that states the aforementioned topic. I really appreciate this person yeah. looking up and going through those articles and then writing to get clarification on this. I think I think Alex is going to be a great OT. I want to know, what do you think an occupational therapy intern, they're just doing their affiliation or clinical? That's what I take it as. They're they're um it's based on the question because it it uh, wasn't a person doing volunteer hours i don't think because the question was sort of detailed um so i would say it's a person doing their clinical field rotations is that what you thought yeah it is so are you going to talk about your response because it was a very detailed and thoughtful response you know what i'm doing right now is i'm trying to figure out what articles I put on that episode. Oh. Well, that was an early episode. Oh, how repetition rules recovery. Okay. Let me just make sure. Yes. I see what I did. Yeah. Okay. So let's get to the answer or as best as I can, but I found another article from 2010. I mean, fMRI was real new, at least to the level of trying to figure out how many repetitions would drive cortical recovery. But I found it and this article says 1200 repetitions. And I think that got stuck in my brain, but there was some other stuff. Um, I said, um, dear Alex, I hope you're doing well. I always say that. I usually say, yeah, you know, because people will launch into stuff and they know I'm like, I'm a human. You guys say human stuff. Usually I say, I hope you are avoiding the various variants. That's my new line. Okay. So um, I see your city is north of Manila. I always wanted to visit the Philippines. And this is true. The way the Philippines have set up rehab training, they make it absolutely commensurate with the American system, the system in the United States, because they know a lot of these people, they want to get out of the Philippines, great country, but it has its problems and they want to move to the States. Now, I will say every one of the therapists, PTs that I've met, and I met many of them uh, because in New Jersey, they were all over the place. Um, they're almost always upper middle class kids that came over. So these are the wealthy people who could afford the schooling. They come to the States and uh, and sometimes they have a good time here and they just stay. And that's great. So I, I mentioned that many of the PTs I worked with early in my career from the Philippines and they are excellent. Anyway, to your question. Okay. There's only one study that shows specifically the number is 1200, but I think one of the problems that exists is that there's too many variables. I mean, you could try to get an average, but that average won't tell you anything about the person sitting in front of you. This is the same problem maybe that the EBRSR is grappling with, where you can't really make definite. All you can do is use the research to kind of guide you. And then the clinician kind of makes cool decisions. So there's no clear number of repetitions that are needed by an individual because variables, and there's a lot of variables like age. That's a big one. Younger people are going to need less repetitions. They have more activity in their brain generally, and they're stronger and they can bring more focus or the number and the extent of the comorbidities. Do they have diabetes? 
Do they have kidney failure? Are they in dialysis? Did they hurt their hip or did they hurt their shoulder in a tennis accident or something? And now it's affecting the number of repetitions they can do. The motivation of the participant, that's a big variable. And then medications or the number of sequelae, those are the things that are directly related to the brain injury. A comorbidity is not related to the brain injury, but a sequelae is the things that are related, things like spasticity and soft tissue shortening and all that stuff. And then the big one is the complexity of the movement, because if it is just just wrist extension and flexion, it may be a much smaller number than if it's something like walking that uses, let's see, toe joints, ankle joints, the joints inside the foot, the knee joint, and the hip joint in a multitude of planes. I mean, it's just much more complicated. The study I found that did show 1,200 repetitions, worked on a finger tapping task. So that would be a couple joints. Okay. So I found a study that suggested that they got fMRI changes. They used a round gel ball to squeeze into. It's one of the things I advocate for the neuroplastic model of spasticity reduction. If you have spasticity in the hand, squeeze into something that will then reopen your hand. Great. And they didn't really report the number of repetitions, but I was able to kind of sort of make an estimation of of 3,600. So that's a lot more than 1,200. Okay. But then there was another study that didn't look at fMRI data, but they did look at the action research arm test. This is a test that keeps coming up. Two tests keep coming up. The Fugelmeyer, or as I like to call it, the Brunstrom Fugelmeyer, because Signe Brunstrom came up with it. Okay. But then the other one is the action research arm test. It's actually a, a German test. And the words action research are two separate words, but arm test is like, you know how the Germans take two words, they stick it together. It's arm test. So it's their test. So they get to call it whatever they want to. It's the action research arm test. And I've done this test a lot. It, it, you got this box, you open it up. It has all these balls that you actually you use a cricket ball for some weird reason, not a baseball. They got cylinders. They got BBs or um, not BBs. What are the other th- ball bearings? And you have to move them from one level to another level. And you get a certain score on how well you do this stuff. Okay. And what they found in that study was 5,400. So we have 3,600 for fMRI changes, 5,400 for movement changes that revolve around grasp and release. So the first takeaway that I have from what you're saying is the changes might be seen in the brain first before they're actually seen physically. So that makes sense that there would have to be more repetition. You know, maybe the way I explained it, that would be a good thing to surmise, but we don't know the number of repetitions. Right. They didn't measure them at a 500 500 or let's say 300 repetition epoch. What they did was they measured it when they measured it and they measured it pre and post, as Mm -hmm. I remember. I think they did two pre-tests and then a post-test. So there was a lot of repetitions before they even tested in both these studies. But we do have our studies and Ed Taub studies where you have constraint-induced therapy and you, you do a pretty good job of counting the number of repetitions a lot of the time. And the number of repetitions that we came up with before we found motoric changes, I'd have to go back into the data, figure out if we did fMRI as well in some of these studies, but it was about 1,400. But as I say, I found another study, a 2010 study, so it's quite old, in which they they, uh, nailed the number at 1,200. So we're talking about somewhere between 1,200, but it could be less in some people, up to maybe 5,400. But that's the kind of variable you should expect in a population of people with brain injury. Yeah. Another takeaway that I have is it's a lot of repetitions. I like that. That's simple. It's, it's a, lot, a lot. 
it's going to be a lot. And um, the other thing is, I, I love the question from Alex. And I do think that students and survivors alike want to know definitive answers. How long is it going to take? How many repetitions do I have to do? You know, when am I going to be better? And life doesn't really work that way. And stroke and brain injury recovery don't work that way. And it's kind of unnerving. But when you think about it in terms of putting in the effort, I think that it's good to have an understanding of what you're saying and that it's going to, it, it could take a lot of repetitions. So a couple of things. First of all, this for clinicians, but also for survivors, it's important that you measure. If something is changing in your brain, it will soon reveal itself in your movement. So if you're willing to measure in a pretty nuanced way, then if you see a change motorically in terms of your movement, you know something happened in the brain because that's where movement comes from. Yeah. So measure, and then you can be your own fMRI machine and you can be your own action research arm test and you can do it yourself. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, I said to Alex, uh, finally, thank you for asking this question. I'm guessing I've gone further than anyone attempting to figure out the number, but because of the variables outlined above, no one knows the number. It's going to be different for every person. I think in the future, maybe I'll make not such a definitive claim about the numbers. And, uh, and so for that, Alex, I am thankful. And this is great. You know what, what, Alex, if you're listening to this, and I hope you do, and I'm going to email you with the latest study I found. I hope you will listen to this and read my email and get back to us and let us know what you think. I think this would be great. Mm-hmm. And, and, look, join, and join the Facebook group too. And join the Facebook group. That's right. Yeah. And like I, like I tell my daughter, Emma, we have cat and dog arguments all the time, usually around politics or something around pot. And I tell her, you know, if you prove me wrong, I love that because I learned something. Yeah, I'm going to scratch and claw a little bit, but I like learning stuff. And if you're wrong, you know who tells you you're wrong? Your really good friends and your family. And that's it. Nobody else wants mm-hmm. to say that kind of because everybody's worried about everybody's feelings. Go ahead. Let me know how wrong I am and we'll move on. Thank you. Yeah. It, it makes me think about the book by Carol Dweck, though, a fixed versus growth mindset. It's one of the things that I talk to the students about all the time is if you have a growth mindset, it it takes some of the like that um, sting that you might have learned that it's bad to be wrong over the course of your life. It takes that away and you actually get to learn and grow and change um, without it, without it being too difficult. I love, I love that conversation that we just had. So What's it's going to take a lot it, and it, um, it will, uh, it takes what it takes, which some people don't like that answer. Oh, it, are we talking about the number of repetitions or are we mm-hmm. talking about the growth mindset or both? Maybe both. Maybe it all goes together. So we need bumper stickers, noggins and neurons. It takes what it takes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Should we get into the episode proper? I guess. Well, I got to do curious the ta- now. See how I got to do going. the tagline then. Hey, Deb Battistella, how you doing? Pete Levine. I'm great. How are you? I'm doing good. My son is off at school. He is and- grappling with his first few soccer practices and they put him through a bunch of drills to figure out how good an athlete he is. And uh, I miss him terribly. And it's been about a week or so, at least since we talked about this. And it seems like a year. I was going to ask, are you like okay? How you doing? How you holding up? <laughs> you know, I have to say, when we dropped him off, everybody in my family cried, and except for me. I don't know. I have a hard time crying. I don't know. 
what my problem is. Oh, it'll come out in some other way. Yeah, it comes out in anger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's how it is with me. Yeah, I know how it works. Urgh. I I talked to my son. I talked to my oldest son tonight before we recorded, and he was home alone with the children, three of them, five, five, two, and one almost. Oh, I could figure out some stuff to do, at least with the two and five-year-old, but the one-year-old, that'd be tough. Well, apparently he was feeding the one-year-old and the other two were doing what they would do. And he said, I know your thinking serves you right. And I said, no, actually, I'm not thinking that at all. I'm, well, I'm not like that. Now, both your sons drum, right? They're both drummers. Does, does yeah. the oldest son have a drum set set up? No, he kind of gave that up with the parenthood thing. Adult, I don't know. I bet you get that five-year-old behind a drum set and you'll never see him again. Ooh, of course, yeah. they'll probably damage their hearing. So get earplugs. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, kids. 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 Yeah, always good. Yeah. Um. So what are we supposed to be talking about tonight? Well, I think that we originally thought this was going to be simple. Oh, boy. But we're learning that it's, it might not be. But we're going through stroke engine interventions A to Z. It, it ends at V, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> How would you describe stroke engine? Well, it's a it's a resource for learning some information about stroke. There's information about assessments and interventions on this site, and they write to survivors and clinicians. So there's information from for both perspectives. I don't think it's as updated as it could be or clear as it could be. I'm left with a lot of questions when I use this site. Sometimes, not all the time. Well, that's good that we're having them on then. Yeah. So Stroke Engine is related to the the thing that we keep talking about, which is the evidence-based review of stroke rehabilitation. It's the Canadians, Tim Horton, the, the Tim Horton caffeine-fueled Canadians who just do amazing things. And we had a short meeting with Dr. T. Sell and Marcus and... Uh, um, what did you take away from that meeting? This was a meeting to set up when we're going to actually interview them. What was your takeaway with that? Well, first of all, I just want to say that I think I would love to, I forget the word think, I would love to work wherever that man is. Um, my takeaway is that he's very passionate about research and uh, getting these tools into the hands of clinicians. And he might have some questions about why certain things aren't being used and he's very practical, I think. Yeah. Yeah. He kind of like, that's the sense I get from him, not just in this discussion, but I've heard a lot of talks online that he's had and it's just cut the crap and let's just get to this. Yeah, let's I think not he- overcomplicate everything. You know, we can do this without a lot of equipment. That was another thing that he kind of hit on. Forget the fancy equipment. Just put a mirror down, you know? I know. Yeah. So I think, um, I think after this episode, therapists, if you're the type of person who needs permission, you might feel like you've been given some permission. By the way, he lives in London, Ontario. And I think he yes. mentioned it, he was just, uh, just north of Detroit, somewhere around there. Well, that's where his cabin is. Oh, that's where his cabin is, right? On Lake Huron, yeah. Uh, London, Ontario is not that far from my house. Oh, well, then you can go head up there and visit him. Yeah, maybe someday. Yeah. I mean, London, Ontario is directly north of Cleveland, but you'd have to take a boat to get there uh, across. From Cleveland. Yeah. Or or from (laughs) London, Ontario, back to Cleveland. And it's because Lake Erie is in the way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so stroke engine is related to the EBRSR. And yeah, maybe what we found a little bit is that they're not quite as diligent with it. Some of the stuff wasn't updated enough. So what I did was I looked at the A to Z list 
Uh, I took the second half of the alphabet. You took the first half. I got through about half of my half, maybe even a quarter of my half, but I then superimposed it on the EBRSR and went to the EBRSR because it was more up to date. So that's the way I looked at it. I didn't. I think I failed. I think I failed in this. (laughs) Well, let's see. Let's see how it goes. So who wants to go first? What do we got? Well, do you want to start at the bottom or do you want to start at the top? I started with V. Yeah. Do you want to start with B? Yeah, I'll start. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So so much for girls first when you're throwing yourself into the lion's den. Thanks a lot, Deb. Okay, here we go. So virtual reality, that's the first thing that comes up. Interestingly, in this list, the upper extremity comes before the lower extremity, except for now going from the bottom up, it still comes before the lower extremity. Just saying. What what are you saying? What are you really saying, Deb? I'm just being, I'm just being me. You know, Bob T-Cell the other day when we talked to him, was it yesterday? It was yesterday. Oh man. It seems like a year ago. I've been dwelling on it so much. (laughs) So he, he talked about it's, he said, it's all about the upper extremity. It's all about the upper extremity. That's where all the good stuff is. I agree with him. And there's a bunch of reasons. First of all, that portion of the brain is very available. It's right at the top of your skull. The motor and sensory homunculus for the hand is huge. It takes up huge swaths of the brain. We figure if we can figure out the hand, especially finger extension, we can figure out just about anything because it's one of the most complicated things that we do is grasp and release and all the manipulations with the fingers. And the other thing is the lower extremity is way down between the hemispheres. So if you're going to do something like transcranial magnetic stimulation, anything where you're trying to touch the brain, it's harder to get down there. But also, and this is Teresa Jones, the uh, behavioral neuroscientists that we talk to, you know, they have, we have a really good analogs, very inexpensive, easy to work with analogs, rats and mice, rodents, and they have very human-like hands. In the lower extremity, eh, everybody's bipedal except for us. So unless we pick on a kangaroo, eh, and they don't really walk like we do, the kangaroos. So no, they really they, don't. There's a bunch of reasons that we focus on the upper extremity. Anyway, so virtual reality for the upper extremity. Everybody knows what virtual reality is. Are you sure everybody knows? Um, the Wii, that's for virtual reality. The Connects, virtual reality. If your kid is playing video games, that's really virtual reality. It is. But there's more to it than just, I mean, those are simple versions of virtual reality. So are you saying it's simpler in that regard to uh, somebody who's using it for rehabilitation? No, I'm just, I'm just saying there are more... Um, extensive devices where you can put a headset on and look like you're actually in a setting. Oh yeah. And I'll get to those. Some use a keyboard and a mouse, but it can be gestures. Sometimes they pick up your body in space and your body itself becomes the controller. Now there's immersive and there's non-immersive. Non-immersive is a flat screen. Immersive is the one where there's a headset. Have you ever used one of those, Deb? Not since the, um. what was that thing, that toy when we were kids? You put that little circle thing in there and it looked like that three-dimensional picture and you click through. That's about as immersive as I've gotten. You know, I want to make fun of you on so many levels with that. First, Just do it. Go up, go right ahead. It shows how old you are, but of course I'm older than you, so that, that doesn't work. And and then to relate something like that, and remember the old picture cards? Like we can go back to the 1900s and they would have two identical pictures, but they would put it, you'd slide it into the thing like you're talking about, and it would give you a three-dimensional perspective on it. But that's not virtual reality. That's I know. Not immersive reality. <laughs> I know. No, I haven't. But what was that thing called? 
I don't know. I forget. I look it up. You look it up. Well, I can't. I don't even know where to start right now because I don't know what it's called. Now, you would say that it's ridiculous to relate that thing that you're talking about to immersive headset sort of virtual reality, but it's not so crazy as you'll soon see because there's something called. Oh, it was the Viewmaster. The Viewmaster. I remember that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one called the Google Cardboard or Google VR. And the reason they call it the cardboard is because it's made out of cardboard and they sell them and they're less than 10 bucks and you can have a virtual. So what you do is you slide your cell phone in and given certain apps, you get this dual vision. So there's two separate things. One hits the right eye, one hits the left eye, and it puts you in this immersive virtual space. So this stuff doesn't have to be expensive, but you know the difference between full immersion and non-immersion, the flat screen versus this, the headset situation kind of reminds me about what Lyndon Johnson, our former president, used to say about the difference between being a senator and being a congressperson. It was the difference between chicken salad and chicken shit. So what's really compelling to the brain is the immersive stuff. That's where you drive much more cortical change. There are advantages to playing flat screen games, things that they will do. And in fact, I've written about this. Um, you know, They're always worried that kids are wrecking their brains and wrecking their eyesight with these games. And they're always on them. I know my son plays them incredible a lot. He does it with his friends. They're in different locations. And it's very sort of competitive. They compete against other teams. It's great. But it's good for rapid eye movement. It's good for processing. It actually heightens good sorts of neuroplastic change. Of course, the fear is that they're violent and they do tend to be violent, but there's a lot of good things to be said for the flat screen. But the immersive stuff, that seems in brain injury to be a step above. Now, the clinical research typically will state in the title whether it was immersive or non-immersive. Obviously, generally speaking, the immersive stuff is more expensive. Sometimes the immersive stuff has haptics. That's where you might wear a glove and through the glove, you can feel the object. They do this with surgeons. They can do remote surgery where they have a surgeon someplace far, far away that then transfers the surgical procedure to a different operating room. But you need to be able to feel the tissue as you tear through it. And so haptics become important. Now, it's really difficult to find stuff that relates specifically to brain injury. Like companies want to make this stuff, but in some ways, it's better to just use the off the shelf stuff. The problem is that the immersive stuff starts at somewhere north of 1200 bucks. There's one called HTC Vive, V-I-V-E. It's an immersive virtual reality system. It's about 1200 bucks on on Amazon. But that doesn't mean, you know, I mean, some of these rehab hospitals, they're flush with money and they might be able to afford it. The problem with it as a technology is it it goes against what I call the Ramachandran rule. And Ramachandran says, if you have an expensive technology, first of all, it's expensive. Second of all, there's going to be a long learning curve. Let's just use a mirror. Yeah. So if you buy that original piece of equipment, do you have to buy more programs to go with it? Do you know? If you're talking about rehabilitation? Yeah. Like an immersive, if you want that immersive virtual reality um, technology for your clinic is like sometimes, you know, there's your base component and then you have to buy more to go with it. Yeah. I mean, that's the way they make a lot of their money is selling yeah. games. Well, I guess thinking about it from a clinical perspective, it would be nice for a clinic to have some something like that for people to use, but also 
have a way for people to be able to to continue their home program or their non-clinic program some way as well. So maybe getting out that mirror and having something for the room as well. There are a lot of companies that do the non-immersive stuff that claim that they're rehab companies. I'm not going to mention any names, but people spend three, 400 bucks on these things that are against a flat screen and they have no research to support them at all. I would save your money. Mm-hmm. If you're going to buy something, buy the Wii. The Wii yeah. picks up your movement and you can use that to motivate yourself. My reading of the way the evidence-based review of stroke rehabilitation looked at virtual reality in the acute phase in the upper extremity, virtual reality didn't seem to help much. In the subacute also, according to them, not much of a difference. But remember, because during the subacute phase, there's a lot of brain coming back online and there's neurotropic factors, et cetera, et cetera, that help drive recovery. All these studies had a control group. Mm-hmm. So one group might be just whatever the treatment they were going to get anyway. And another group would be whatever treatment they were going to get anyway, plus the virtual reality. In both the subacute and acute phases, it didn't seem to work that well. So maybe it's just a, you know, a work in progress because I think there is potential here. And look, a lot of people, I talked to a stroke survivor yesterday. That day uh, again, that seems like a year ago. Yes, that day. And she was talking about how utterly boring she found mirror therapy. And Sometimes this stuff, because it involves so many repetitions, it can get kind of boring. I know. And so that may be where virtual reality uh, comes in. Yeah. So that's the, what I got for the upper extremity for virtual reality. I do have stuff for the next. Can, can I just say one thing that I think is important to talk about with the virtual reality are the side effects. So if somebody is prone to like movement related nausea, I think that could happen with that immersive situation, depending on the program that you're using. Man, I, I wore one of those things. I think it was the Oculus. I actually forget. It was at a Microsoft store. And, you know, you stand there and you're underwater and mm-hmm. there's a whale and it's ginormous and it's coming right at you. And it takes every bit of control that you have to not move out of the way of the big guy. And he makes a noise and it's startling. And so I can imagine somebody getting frightened and mm-hmm. seasick and what, what you were saying, motion, motion sickness. sickness. Yeah. Hey Pete, you know, what's great about podcasts? Well, a lot of things, you have a world of different options. You can fast forward through stuff you don't like, and it's all on your phone. So you can listen to it while you're driving or exercising or doing chores around the house. Well, that stuff is pretty cool, but that's not the most important thing. Wait, what do you think is the most important thing? That when you listen to the radio, all you get are ads. Even NPR shuts down for it seems like weeks to beg for money. Uh, uh Uh-oh. Oh, no. Uh Uh-oh, what? We're about to do the same thing. You know how much work we put into this, the research, the endless technology hoops that we have to jump through, the websites, the equipment, the editing. We just need a little help. Well, how can people help? Through Venmo. We have a Venmo account and any little bit will help. Our Venmo address is at Neurons because of course it is. At Neurons? How much do you think people should give? About a million dollars. Come on. Okay, like $500? Are you serious? $50? Let's just put it this way. Every little bit helps. If you want to support Noggins and Neurons' effort to simplify the best of neuroscience and rehab science for brain injury recovery, then $1 million to add neurons. 
And here's some good news. 20% of everything we get will go to the Brain Injury Association of America, which helps individuals who've had a brain injury, family caregivers, and the professionals who help create a better future through medical research and treatment. So that's what I have for the upper extremity for virtual reality. I do have stuff for the lower extremity for virtual reality, but why don't you give us one of yours? What was the first one on the list? Oh, I remember acupuncture. Acupuncture has to do with stimulating certain trigger points along the body's meridian lines to help regulate the flow of energy or chi. And we talked about acupuncture in what doesn't work. I think we talked about that. But this site might be something that that listeners want to investigate because there's some it's there's some interesting information on here. And cupping is a form of acupuncture, which I I never really realized that. So I found that to be interesting. I'm sorry, what is cupping? So cupping is when they put suction cups on the body and it's supposed to increase blood flow so to the tissues. Is that the thing where at the end of it, it looks like you've had a, a bunch of hickeys? Yeah. Is that a term kids still use, hickeys? They I don't, don't know. Do I think I, straight to tattoos. Maybe. I don't know. I recently, I woke up one morning and I couldn't move my neck and I couldn't open my jaw, my mouth, like my whole right side was just, I thought, oh my God, what happened to me? How am I going to be able to eat? How am I going to be able to eat? And so I scheduled a massage with some cupping and she said, I'm going to be careful not to leave marks on you. So it doesn't look like you got a whole bunch of hickeys. I said, well, that would be nice. Thank you. Wait, how, how old was this therapist? She was younger. And they said, okay. And she right. used the term hickeys. So hickey, it's still, it's, yeah, it's I guess politically incorrect or something. Okay, good. It, I mean, I don't know another term to call them, but I had red marks all over my neck and then I had to go out in public. I had to go onto campus and I thought, well, yeah, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to let people think what they will. <laughs> I, did yeah. you drive to campus with your motorcycle? You know what? Forget it. <laughs> Let's just talk about acupuncture. They looked at this in the different phases of stroke, and they found that it's not more helpful in general. So they looked at it in terms of balance, cognitive function, depression, dexterity, independence, and a lot of other things that it's not really effective for. But you know what it's effective for? Swallowing problems. It's effective for dysphagia. What? In the, Get out. I'm not kidding you. In the acute phase and in phase not specific to one period. So that's what I found to be fascinating is that it is effective for swallowing. And this actually is more recent. They are referring to a 2016 randomized control trial. So I think it might be something to look at or consider or investigate for people who have swallowing problems. And also in phases in a phase not specific to one period, it was effective for improving cognitive function. And I think that goes back to what we I sort of remember what we talked about, how it changes the chemical structure in the brain. So whatever happens in the body when they unblock those energy meridians, it has an effect cognitively. Wow. Oh, check this out too. And combining acupuncture with computerized cognitive training was also found to be more effective than 
acupuncture alone, computerized cognitive training alone, and conventional rehab. Wow. So it was a combination of acupuncture and computerized cognitive training. I wonder what the heck that is. I know. Yeah. So that's a variable that fall that what do, how do I say this? It goes against the Ramachandran rule. I'm already overcomplexed. You know, well, maybe it's a simple app. Maybe it's a simple brain game. Could be. Don't a know. lot of people like what's that um Lumosity? A lot of people like that website. So I wonder if it's it could be as simple as that. I've done a few little bit of writing and talking about uh, Lumosity and their ilk. Um, generally speaking, there's a view among neuroscientists in the know, specifically Michael Mersenich. He's I've talked about him before. He's the guy who developed the cochlear implant and very early neuroplasticity studies. And he has a company called Posit Science where they do use games. But unlike Lumosity, who so far as I can tell, it's just a cash machine because everybody's buying the games. Posit Science give their stuff to independent labs to see if it helps kids with ADHD, with auditory processing, various forms of autism, older people that have trouble with vision. Those sorts of games are specific to that pathology. But when Lumosity claims that they expand people intellectually, that's nowhere near proven. What it does is it makes you better at those games. Now, they then can't tell whether it's generalizable to any other skill from trying to figure out how to get from here to to the local highway to playing chess or any other skill that you're trying to do. So that's the problem I have with some of those games. Posit science, P-O-S-I-T science. And every time Mm -hmm. somebody comes to me and says, you know, my child has a learning disability. They say, do you have any, you talk about neuroplasticity a lot. What do you have for that? I go, Michael Mersinich, Posit Science, go there and I bet you'll find something. Older people to improve their vision, people to improve their auditory processing, dyslexia, all those things. That's where I would go. But yeah. Well, for the record, I don't ever recommend Lumosity. I just hear people talk about it any more than I think that doing a word search puzzle is helpful for improving cognition. I really don't. And don't get me wrong. These things don't hurt, but- The research. Yeah. I mean, just because you're really good at chess- well, that's good for your brain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mostly so that you, you become a better chess player. Although people say that that's transferable because you got to figure out what to do three moves from now. I did suggest a game to you um, yeah. where if you have trouble figuring out what you were just thinking, it's called the N back. So it's the letter N dash back. And it's a free thing. Let me put that on my show notes list. It's the only one I've seen that makes the claim and has some research to make the claim that it increases IQ. What it does is it asks that you figure out something that happened not the last time ago, but the time before that. So it's the ability to hold two thoughts in your head at the same time. And of course, you can't do that because that's not the way the brain operates, but it can switch within milliseconds from one idea to the next. So the end back, I'll put that on there. There's some. Yeah. So we got, um, how did we get, how do we get there from- uh, From acupuncture? Yeah. What's up? Because there was computerized cognitive training. Oh, oh, okay. (laughs) Oh, and then we made that leap to Lumosity and then we got- Yeah. Okay. Well, all right. Yeah. There we go. It's also effective for insomnia. Do you think insomnia will get in the way of recovery? I do. How so? Go. Well- I know, right? Oh my God. Well, the brain is not getting the proper um, 
wave patterns that it needs in order for learning to occur, in order to eliminate some of those, um, what do we call those? Like the waste materials, the waste products. Um, Amyloid beta. Yeah, that. And tau protein. That too. Um, And sometimes people who don't sleep are grumpy. And when you're grumpy, you don't want to do your therapy. Yeah, absolutely. Those are Those are some big ones. Well, it can affect concentration, your ability to concentrate and focus, negative impact on that. So this is interesting. They found this study where there's moderate evidence that acupuncture is more effective than sham acupuncture in improving symptoms of insomnia in patients with stroke and insomnia. And I think that it would be nice if they looked at some of these other strategies that we talked about um, to see the difference between those because you know, maybe we're, I just want to make the best recommendation for people. And the other thing that they found acupuncture to be helpful for is health-related quality of life. So they found sleep energy, emotion, sleep, physical movement, and energy favored a type of acupuncture, electro acupuncture versus none. Electro acupuncture uses needles and they pass very small electrical currents through them. Is it the anode and the diode? You know how like if you want to jumpstart your battery, you have a red cable and a black cable and you're supposed to put the black cable on the black post and the red cable on the red post. Color coding helps. Yeah. But you always hook it up. I don't know if this is the right way to do it. So don't take this to the bank, but you always hook it up to the good battery first and that engine started. And then you take them and you click them together, the two the two uh, electrodes there, and it makes a spark. I always like that. But it's interesting in the pictures I see of electroacupuncture, they also have a red lead mm-hmm. and a black lead. And I bet that's pretty important. I would think so. You mentioned sleep again with this mm-hmm. stuff. Are you, is it okay if I slight, slightly switch the conversation back to sleep? Yeah. So Matthew Walker, and I always forget his name. I had to look it up again, but he's the sleep expert. So I think I'm going to call him Matthew Sleepwalker. Maybe that'll help me remember it. And you know, he talked a lot about how everything that we learn is consolidated in the, um, what's the part of the brain that has short-term memories? The hippocampus. The hippocampus. Oh my God. I am learning so much from this podcast. Thank you. And so in order to get it in there, the brain has to do stuff to allow synaptic connections to consolidate. And that happens when you're sleeping. So if acupuncture helps you sleep, man, man, I mean, who do you know that has trouble sleeping? Because I know two people that are near and dear to me, horrible time sleeping. I hear people, students talk about having a hard time sleeping. That's because you're stressing them out. (laughs) Hey, it's part of being a student. I guess. I just I remember having this one student who just didn't sleep well ever. So I think some people just don't. There's something to be said about waking up feeling refreshed and ready to face the day. And I think for stroke survivors, you know, they have they have some things on their mind, especially when it, when the stroke first happens. And I think that getting a good night's sleep um, is important for all the reasons that we stated, but maybe even especially for motivation levels and just having that drive to try one more day. Man, yeah, just a good night's sleep. It's weird how it feels too. Everything just feels better. I think mm-hmm. things taste better. You sense more. Soul brain is alive. Sleep, sleep. I remember when my daughter was in college and she called me devastated because she submitted an assignment a couple minutes after midnight. She was really upset about it. 
And I suggested that she would feel better in the morning about it. And that in the morning, when she felt better, she could reach out to her professor and explain what happened. And she called me the next day and she was like, mom, you were right. There's just something about going to sleep. Yeah. It's it's a new day. It is a new day. We get to be reborn if we do it right every yeah, day. Every, every day. Yeah. Reborn, but with the knowledge of yesterday. Oh, this is getting weird. Okay. Okay. Should we move on? We should move on. And one last thing I just I want to say yes. is that there's no evidence that it helps with things like balance and dexterity and overall motor function. All right. Well, all right. Oh. <laughs> are we going back to the virtual reality? We are. We're going back to virtual reality, but for the lower extremity. Yeah. And I got to say, to really get my head around it, I went to this great video. I'll put it in the show notes. It was from Brooks Rehabilitation. And this therapist, she got on. And a lot of times when therapists get in front of cameras, there's this sort of deer in the headlights feel. She didn't have that at all. She just nailed it. So basically what it is, is it's a treadmill and you're walking towards a screen. It's a little bit more difficult because you're harnessed, right? So to have the headset on is very difficult because you don't want to walk off the treadmill, right? So it's a screen in front of you and you're walking through a a virtual reality environment, maybe down the woods, maybe over rocks, whatever it is. What's really cool about it is that because there's force plates in the treadmill itself, it can give you real-time data on stride length, walking speed, balance, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So if you have that kind of real-time data, it's motivating for the patient, but also gives you something to put in your notes and say, hey, we're heading in the right direction. Before she was walking at one mile an hour, and now she's at 1.5 miles an hour. Plus, there's ways of it, it comes from lights from above to put footfalls in front of the person so that they can have their foot fall in the projected footfall. So you have vol- multiple virtual reality things coming at them. And the other thing is that if the treadmill is coming at you at a certain velocity, then and then if you have footfalls down, it adds a sort of rhythmic element. And one of the things that's destroyed after brain injury, obviously, especially stroke, is the rhythmicity, the natural rhythmicity of gait is destroyed. And if you can reestablish rhythmicity, that's a really good start. So even if you don't do this, try a metronome. Well, you mentioned a metronome app in one of our earlier episodes. Do you happen to remember which one you were talking about? The one I have is called Loud. <laughs> yes, that's it. Yeah, because you know it is a little bit louder and you need to make sure that the patient hears it and you hear it as you're doing a gay training. Or if you're somebody who's a survivor, you may not want to hold the darn thing the whole time you're walking. So you put it down in the middle of the room. I mean, that's the other thing, by the way... If you put it in the middle of the room, you run out of room. But with a treadmill, as happens with these virtual reality lower extremity applications, the treadmill is endless. Now they have them harnessed so they can take more risks. They won't fall because the harness will hold them up. It's kind of like a parachute harness and it hooks to something usually in the ceiling, but sometimes it's a rack. And I think Lightgate is the big brand here, but that way they can take more risks as you have them walking over or down virtual reality pass. Look, Brooks Rehab has it, but it's one of the highest ranked rehab hospitals in the country. They have money. Kessler has it. Shirley Ryan Ability Lab has it. Ranchos Los Amigos has it. But the people that may not have this, it's the Ramachandran rule. It's expensive. There's a learning curve. So it's great if you can afford that kind of stuff, but it's not until it's more usable that we can really use it. 
Is there any type of seated virtual reality? For the lower? Yeah, for the lower extremity. Not that I know of. Mm-hmm. So if you're talking about preambulatory stuff, stuff that sets up the muscles so that they're strong enough and works on coordination, that the coordination is good enough for them to walk when they do get to standing, then you're probably talking about something like the new step. Everybody mm-hmm. knows what the new step is. Yeah. And you could do something, it seems to me, that would be sort of like that, maybe a bicycle application. And that we know exists, the Peloton, but there's other ones probably for lower level people as well. Yeah, I don't know if there's preambulatory stuff that has virtual reality. I'm such a firm believer in the new step. I've seen that just help so many people. Yeah. Well, I'll age myself. There used to be this thing called the Kinetron. Do you happen to remember the Kinetron? Well, it's more like in like skilled nursing would have it and hospitals would have it. Oh, I do. Oh my God. It's old school. And ain't no school like the old school. I don't think you even find them anymore, but it was a pre-stepping kind of thing. So their butt was sitting kind of-ish, but they were also Mm -hmm. kind of standing. And look, as a precursor to ambulation or weight bearing, we do know that generally speaking, tilt tables work. So it was kind of a tilt table, but it had the stepping thing. I wish they would come back. What happened to Kinetron? Yeah, we had one of those at the hospital when I first started there. Look at these pictures. Oh my goodness. Oh yeah, there it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe people still have them. Oh, you. There's here's a one for sale. I use Cybex. Remember Cybex? That's mm-hmm. the company. They're that still around. It. It's the Kinetron two-stepper. How much is it? You going to get it? Let's have a look. We might have to get it if we start a museum, but I think they're they're good. I mean, they're really good. And they were built like brick houses. Mm-hmm. They never fell apart. As I remember. Um, it's no longer available. Oh. Yeah. Because somebody bought it because they rule. Yeah. Well, they've got their museum going. (laughs) That's true. Um, (laughs) Now, in terms of the research for virtual reality for the lower extremity, it says it works better than with the upper extremity. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. In the upper extremity, it's mixed at best from acute through chronic. In the lower extremity, it's effective for balance, walking speed, and speed we know is good. Speed means less falls, more confidence, better balance, and more longevity. So that's good news. Yeah. But the reason is if you're doing the upper extremity, what are you doing? Are you doing the Wii and playing tennis? Are you doing some haptic thing where you're moving around a, a steering wheel? What is it that you're doing? Well, you could do all the things that the upper extremity does. What are all the things the upper extremity does? Oh my God. Oh. We'll, we'll be here all day talking about it. Thousands and thousands of different things from carpet weaving to cigar rolling to throwing a fastball. What do the lower extremities do? They walk. So, <laughs> so I had to say that three times, but I'm cutting the first two out. Um, so when you're on a treadmill, you're walking. So it's task specific and it's focused on a task that they find very meaningful. The upper extremity, we tennis, uh, you know, maybe not so meaningful. So I think that's why it does better in the lower extremity. Mm. Going back to your simple and inexpensive rule, though, it says that it's not more effective than conventional therapy just for um, things like obstacle clearance. So maybe actually having people walk and clear an obstacle like outside, going up and down curbs, walking on grass, stepping over stones, maybe that's better therapy. Uh, Maybe it is, but you're talking about somebody who's really quite high level. Whereas with this, you can have them step over something that's flat, but looks kind of like a rock Mm -hmm. and they're harnessed. And that's the other thing. You can do overground 
around harnessing kinds of things. Like on the light gate, um, you can take it over ground. It has rollers and just have them walk over ground. There's other. Oh, that's cool. I think actually Cybex makes one as well. Do they? Well, I do think if people are in rehab, and I know the rehab hospital that I worked at, we were not allowed to take people outside. So I think if in certain settings, I do think it's a great idea. And I think that um, people should be given these opportunities, which is a virtual reality experience. Yeah. Although you could do regular gate training and set up all the cones and everything. But I think that was one of the things that this therapist from Brooks was trying to get at was that it allows for an endless walkway. And at the touch of a few buttons, you can get a variety of things. Mm-hmm. Virtual reality in on the screen in front of them changes, but also it, they have to go around different objects and they have to step over things. Mm-hmm. You know, but it it doesn't pass the Ramachandran tests, so there is that problem. So that's what I have for virtual reality for the lower extremity. I find that to be very interesting. And I'm the kind of person, I love variety. And I think if if there's a budget for something like that, then maybe that's something that a facility should consider. Absolutely, they should. Yeah. yeah. I think, Do you think yeah. What were you going to say? I think I was going to say something along the lines of, obviously, it's expensive. Not a lot of folks are going to be able to afford it, um, but it's worthwhile. Actually, I had nothing. I forget. What oh. I'm going to go plug the end <laughs> back and figure out what I was going to say. <laughs> Well, I guess based on what you just said that you didn't think you were going to say that you just said, as a therapist, then I would have to think about the next step. So when they leave the facility, what is it that they should do next? Because they're obviously not going to have that system at home. So maybe finding an outpatient facility that has it if they need it. You know, it is weird. And one of the funniest lines in all of the EBRSR is that it appears as if task-specific training for gait is the best way to train gait, which means the best way to learn how to walk is to walk. And task-specific training is like a huge deal. It's mm-hmm. And the more salient or cogent or important that the task is to the person, the more it drives cortical change. And, uh, and walking is always very important to mm-hmm. everyone. And anybody who's ever lost their ability to walk even temporarily, you, you know how crazy it can be. You can't get to the kitchen. Mm-hmm. So I have a question that you could probably answer. Looking at this, what are gate parameters? What does that mean? Um, Alex, can I have the context, please? Well, I'm looking at the the outcomes list for the virtual reality in terms of all of these categories. Chronic phase, they have gate parameters. For the ankle training, they have gate parameters. Same thing with postural control training. Are they talking about stride length, step length, gait speed? Oh, here it is. Velocity, cadence. Yep. Step stride length. I mean, you can do so- weird things that you can measure. Um, there's a, a mat that you can roll out. It's called the gate right. It's got like a million cents. It's, it's about, I think it's like eight meters long and it has a million sensors in it. So you can tell which part of the foot is taking the most weight and it gives you a map of the foot. So there's a lot of stuff that you can measure that would fall in that category that I think you're talking about. It makes me think about the, the quality of the gait pattern. And I think that people, you've alluded to this, the embarrassment factor of 
of the way that people move. And I think that would be important to somebody. I think it would be important to me the way that I walk and I would want that to improve. Maybe I'm a little vain. And it would be great if you could improve and know that you're improving by using these kinds of measurements that they're talking about. Mm -hmm. But also going back to something that you said when we were talking about measuring change, using video, recording somebody walking and seeing the change, which now that I think about it, I think that video recording is a good idea because you know how when you're in the middle of changing and learning and doing all these things, you don't feel like anything's changing. Yeah. You're too close to it. Mm -hmm. I think that would be a good idea. Yeah. So measuring and and doing videotape so that, yeah, Mm -hmm. fan of that. Okay, cool. Well, thanks, Deb. As usual, I had a ball. Me too, Pete. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.